Hello and welcome to the Geared Ashley Mullet Show. It's been a while, but I am, as I have always been, your host, Geared Ashley Mullet. Today we're going to talk about the final presidential debate between current president Donald John Trump and former vice president Joe Biden. My family and I watched it last night. It was a recording on YouTube. We didn't get to watch it live. I had dinner plans with a guy from church here in Greeley and uh, had to just miss it. And I, I knew it would keep. I knew it wasn't going to spoil or go bad or cease to be relevant if I waited a night. And uh, so we watched it last night and uh, it was interesting. I, I want to talk a little bit in this episode about how the debate performance was, but not so much uh, focusing on the technical details of how Trump did and how Biden did and how the moderator did. Um, personally, I find that pretty boring, and I don't want to bore you with uh, those kinds of details if you're interested in them. There are other people that can talk more about those, but uh, I'm more interested in the ideas being communicated by both men and the moreover philosophy of government which both men have, uh, which is very much at odds. They have a very, very contrasted uh, vision of government. It would be a mistake to look at Biden and Trump and think first in terms of optics. That would be a mistake. Now, it might be worth uh, considering if you're a uh, political junkie or if you're a political advisor and you're watching these guys and their optics to see you know, how are, are people that are more superficial going to take them? But when it comes to winning over your friends and family, there's not a whole lot of utility, I don't think, in focusing on the optics. I think that the more enduring legacy is going to be had when we're focused on the ideas and what is true and what is good and what is right and what works, what would be our responsibility if we were in their shoes, and what would be the best way of uh, accomplishing our responsibilities. And so who is communicating a vision that is in uh, the closest alignment with that, right? That, that really should be our task, not who looks better on camera, not who looks strong, not who sounds really smart, not who stumbles over the words or doesn't, not who... Uh, you know, we, we like personally better who, who we'd rather sit down and have a beer with. Uh, personally, I would rather have a beer with none of the above if it's an option. I, I wouldn't mind having a beer with uh, President Trump. I'm not a big fan of Biden. I'll just say that up front. Uh, and it really isn't so much to do with personality, honestly. Uh, it really is to do first and foremost with what are their ideas what is it obvious that they believe about who people are and what's right and wrong and about what works? Uh, what are their ideas about those things and what do they believe? And how do we know what they believe based on what they do and what they say? Not the superficial things, not the talking points, not the cleverly contrived uh, turn of phrase that allows them to sometimes get out of a gotcha moment if a journalist is asking a an entrapping question. But what are the things that they consistently act on and talk about? And, and, and not just the things that they talk about, but how do they talk about the things that they talk about? And what can we glean from that about the way that they see the world. And, the, and their worldview really will decide how they make decisions in the office of presidency. Now, to be clear, I don't think that we put a healthy amount of emphasis on the office of president. I think it would be far, far better if the president of the United States of America had less power, less prestige, relative the other branches of government. So Congress really should have an equal amount of prestige. Maybe not any one person, maybe not the Speaker of the House, uh, Nancy Pelosi aside, but just thinking generally broadly, um, you know, maybe not the Speaker of the House, maybe not the Senate Majority Leader, 
in particular, but the, the body as a whole, and, and when any member of that representative body, either the Senate or the House, speaks, uh, it should carry um, something closer to an equal amount of weight in our minds to what the, the, the president uh, has to say and, and how he reflects on this country. Uh, same also with the Supreme Court. Our Supreme Court is the top level of our judicial branch in this country. And it really should be the case that we put as much uh, emphasis and, and weight and um, attention into the things that are said by our Supreme Court justices, and uh, especially chief justices, not necessarily John Roberts, again, any more than Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi. But just speaking in general, I think it would be more ideal and closer to a healthy system of government if we didn't put so much emphasis on who's going to be president. Is it going to be Trump? Is it going to be Biden? And the potential to do either catastrophic damage or to save our country single-handedly. Honestly, we can't just pick a person to be our savior unless that person is Jesus. That's my conviction as a Christian. Now, what am I not saying? I am not saying that politics is of this world and we need to be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. I think that's a big mistake also. That's actually bad theology if you're reading the scriptures and you actually are heavenly minded. You won't think that way. You really won't. The people that are so quote unquote heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good really aren't only trying to appear heavenly-minded. They're trying to appear and have a reputation for being spiritual. And so it's a kind of pseudo-spirituality. It's a kind of pseudo-holiness. It's a, a holiness in name only because it doesn't translate into love. And, and love that acts, love that is active. Now, it's one thing if I say to my wife, oh, I love you, and then I'm awful and I neglect her and I don't take care of her and I don't protect her and I don't encourage her and I don't help her and I don't serve her. What kind of love is that, right? That's cheap and it is superficial and it's fake. Now, on the other hand, if I am taking care of my wife, I am protecting her, I am encouraging her, I am being kind to her, I am being considerate of her, I am serving her, then you know, even if I don't say in so many words, I love you, I love my wife. You know that I love my wife because it's clear, right? It's demonstrable. So also our supposed holiness, our supposed spirituality as Christians cannot be in name only. It cannot be just rhetoric. And we have a script and we have talking points and we say these things and they allow us to be Switzerland about anything of consequence here on earth. The fact of the matter is there is a living God who created us in his image and he put us here for a purpose. Our purpose is not just to bite our time and twiddle our thumbs until Jesus calls us home. If you think that, you didn't arrive at that conclusion, you didn't come to that conclusion from reading the scriptures. You didn't come to that conclusion from God's word. You hold to untrue ideas, and unfortunately, they are unproductive, they're fruitless, they're futile. You are, you are futile in your thinking, and there's a lot of reasons why that might be. You might have inherited a futile way of thinking, a fruitless uh, philosophy and theology from other people that you thought were trustworthy who also similarly did not want to get engaged. They didn't want to pick up their cross and follow Jesus. They didn't want to suffer. They didn't want to be persecuted. They didn't want to serve those that were around them. They didn't want to love their neighbor as they love themselves. They wanted to sit on the sidelines and be lazy and be sloths and be uh, passive and irresponsible. They wanted to bury their talents in a field and we know from the parable of the talents that the master at some point returns and asks what kind of return on his investment in his three servants he can enjoy now. And two servants in the parable have invested and turned a profit. One of them was given more and turned an, a certain amount. The other was given a little bit less and 
still turned a profit because he put it to work. He put that money to work and invested it. And the third servant buried what he was given, what was entrusted to him by the master in a field. And he was rebuked in the parable. So also we can expect to be rebuked by Christ, by God himself, if we bury our talents in our, in our field, if we bury the gifts and opportunities and uh, the responsibility that we have, moreover, in a field and we don't act on it, then what sort of faith is that? Can that kind of faith save? You know, the book of James in the New Testament says, show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You'll know what I believe because you'll see me acting on it. But coming back to this presidential debate, because it is such a crossroad for our country, it is such a crossroad, not just for the nation, but for so many Christians. And I want to talk specifically to the Christians this morning. Not that non-Christians uh, cannot benefit from what I have to say, but insofar as they do benefit, I think they will get the most benefit if I can talk to the Christians and say, listen, you need to step up to the plate. We need to live out the gospel in a obvious way, in a demonstrable way, not to get not to get acclaim, not to get praise. Right? We're not giving as the Pharisees do, so that we can be, you know, thought highly of by men. We're not announcing our giving with trumpets. We're not uh, making very loud prayers on the on the street corners, so that we can be heard by men and they can be impressed with how pious we are. We are letting our light so shine before all men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. That really should be our motivation. If our first thought is, this is going to cost me, that person won't like it. This person may never speak to me again. This may hurt my career. This may hurt my plans for the holidays. If certain family either does not you know, invite my family over, me over, or if they turn down my invitation to them or whatever. Or if we all go and we all have a meal together for Thanksgiving or Christmas, but it's really awkward and tense and uncomfortable. And, and now I'm going to associate that fear of man issue that I have with my testimony. And I'm going to conflate the two. I can't do that as a Christian because the scriptures are clear that the fear of man lays a snare. Whoever trusts in Yahweh is safe, but the fear of man is a snare. If you are afraid to do what is right, to say what is true, because you may be punished for it, you may be persecuted for it, if that is your first thought, and if that is your actual motivation for saying what you say and doing what you do, or not saying what you should, when you know the good that you ought to do and you do not do it, it is sin. And there is a holy and righteous God who knows the difference between your stated reason and your real reason. There are two reasons why a man does anything. There's the reason he tells you, and then there's his real reason. And so also, too, we need to be self-aware. We need to not deceive ourselves because that can happen. We can tell other people often enough and tell ourselves often enough that we actually believe that our real reasons for doing or saying something are pure. We are the pure ones. And yet, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is so. We can be deceived if we are not careful. We can deceive ourselves. We can also be deceived by flattery from people who just want to get on our good side so that they can get something from us. And so they tell us that everything we do is fantastic and great, and they've got fear of man issues as well, so they would never tell us if they disagreed with us. They lack integrity. They lack courage. They're not honest. And, you know, if we put too much stock in that, it really does entrap us. The proverb that says that the fear of man lays a snare is very... Uh, profoundly true. And it's necessary that we remember that, not just in terms of an election coming up, really. But now we see a consequence on a national scale, on a global scale, really, if a whole lot of the church has fear of man issues to the point that 
we vote with the side that threatens us. We vote with the side that wants to destroy us if we oppose them in hopes that if we just appease them, we can have peace in our time, like Neville Chamberlain. Now, the problem with Neville Chamberlain is that he lived to see the folly of his agreements with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. He was indulging his wishful thinking more than he was engaging his mind and looking at the way the world really was. He wanted it to be a certain way, and yet it was a different way. And because he refused to look at the way the world was, and he insisted on seeing the world the way that he wanted it to be, he underestimated Hitler. He overestimated himself. He underestimated the evil that can dwell in the hearts of men. And he overestimated what good would come from his lofty rhetoric. And what came from that was a very, very costly war. It devastated Europe. It devastated uh, the whole world, really, with the exception of America. America ended up coming to the rescue, thank God. Uh, I do believe that was a divine appointment. And it's one of the, the really uh, great achievements of this country that we saved the world from Nazism and from the uh, Imperial Japanese who were just awful. They were awful. They were they were totally depraved in the way that they treated subjugated peoples and, and human beings created in the image of God that they had told themselves were less than human and did not require any kind of kindness, any kind of fairness, any kind of justice. In their minds, justice was to eliminate those people because they were less they were inferior. They were uh, not going to extend any kind of olive branch because they were going to have the world on their terms or else. And so the people that wanted peace and were tired of war and they had these uh, really hubristic notions of their own ability to uh, you know, soothe the savage beast those people ended up drastically and, and um, you know, massively uh, increasing the ultimate cost of the conflict when the conflict came. When there was no more illusion and ability to maintain an illusion that peace could be accomplished without first making war. Uh, Sivis possum parabellum. Uh, we should desire peace. That is right. That is good. Seek peace and pursue it, the scriptures say. But we do not honor God and we do not love our neighbor as we love ourselves if we ignore all of the rest of the scriptures which show us the capacity of man to be and do evil. We are irresponsible and weak and naive and foolish if we underestimate the ability of man to do evil. And so, you know, we come to the debate again last night and we had on the one side of the stage, the current president, we had on the other side of the stage, the former vice president, who just four years ago, this time, was uh, second in command of the executive branch. He was second only to Barack Obama. And I don't miss those days. I don't know about you. I don't miss those days. For eight years, we had Obama and radicals in the White House, radicals in the various bureaucracies, radicals in every uh, sector of our government that Obama could put somebody into, radicals who were appointed to accomplish an agenda that would, in the words of Barack Obama, fundamentally transform the United States of America. That was the goal from the outset. And the reason that was the goal is because Barack Obama and the progressives accept the narrative that's peddled by the likes of Howard Zinn, 
that America's history is, at its core, a tale of oppression, the oppression of uh, non-white, uh, non-male, non-heterosexual, non-Christian peoples. And that as such, since that is the story of America, we have to destroy this system and start over if we are to stop the oppression because the oppression persists so long as the system persists. And so long as the ideas and beliefs which contributed to the construction of the system that we have uh, prevail, then the system will prevail. And so in order to destroy the system, you have to erode those ideas. You have to undermine those ideas. You have to destroy people's confidence in those ideas. So the free market, for instance, is a problem if capitalism uh, produces income inequality. Our justice system, based on, to a very great extent, Judeo-Christian ideas of right and wrong, of fairness, of truth, of justice, uh, our justice system, if it leads to punishing certain people and certain groups disproportionately, then our justice system has to be uh, dismantled and abolished. And also, we have to let go of, we have to abolish our Judeo-Christian worldview in this country. Now, people can still believe it on an individual level, but you had better keep it to yourself. If you are in any kind of professional or social or political capacity and you espouse these views, which are now verboten, which are now forbidden, then these uh, progressives that um, are compatriots and lackeys of uh, former President Barack Obama, former Vice President Joe Biden, they will destroy your life. They will destroy you and destroy your ability to propagate these ideas because what you're doing is you are propping up the system which they are hell-bent on destroying, on, on dismantling. So when I listen to Joe Biden talking about what he wants to do, talking about uh, gradually, quote-unquote, over time, abolishing oil and gas in the United States of America. When I hear him talking about what he wants to do with criminal justice reform, uh, talking about what he wants to do with health care, talking about what he wants to do with our foreign policy, talking about what he wants to do with uh, the response to COVID, I do not hear any of his ideas in a vacuum, isolated, compartmentalized uh, by themselves. And you shouldn't either. You really, really should not see those as coincidental uh, and individual. They are of a piece with the larger narrative, which the left has embraced and which they insist on conformity to, which they insist on everyone agreeing with and uh, abiding by. So a few books here recently I've read, which I would recommend to you, and I, I can't adequately uh, give a summary of all of these books in the time that I have for this podcast. I really can't. I'd love to reference them. I'm sure I will reference them in future podcasts and in my writing. But several books by Thomas Sowell have been uh, really useful to me here recently in understanding the mechanics behind the political strife in this country and in our modern American history with regards to World War II and World War I, with regards to the Korean War, the Vietnam War, uh, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and with regards to this ideological and cultural civil war that we have had for the past three years, three and a half years, between those who support Trump and those who are hell-bent on the progressive agenda. We don't have a hot war except in small pockets here and there where cities are burning, where police forces are being uh, defunded and abolished, uh, where police officers are resigning in droves across the country, where crime is on the rise, where uh, businesses are shuttered, where people who merely uh, show up outside of their house with a bare face can be fined 
They can be doxxed. They can be uh, fired. They can be arrested if they show up in a business, in a public place, at a park, without a mask. Uh, in places where masks are worn, that seemingly is enough to justify, in the minds of those on the left, burning down businesses, burning down buildings, burning down neighborhoods, burning uh, vehicles in the streets, murdering people, murdering law enforcement, murdering civilians, uh, threatening and terrorizing our country. And if you are listening to this podcast, we're 26 minutes in, you're the kind of person that's been paying enough attention to the news for the past year, for the past three years, for the past 10 years, that you know all of this. None of this is news to you. But I remind you of it because there is an aspect to the conflict in this country which is already violent, which is already, um, I think the um, preview of a larger civil war if we if we don't find some way to de-escalate. Now, I personally am not a fan of peace on any terms because we have to think of peace more broadly. And as Christians, we cannot afford to think of peace only in terms of interpersonal relationships with our fellow man. In fact, when Jesus asked, which is the greatest commandment? He says that the first and greatest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it. But we can't get those two mixed up. We can't think of the second as actually being the first and then put the first second. Otherwise, we become idolatrous. Otherwise, we get very, very confused in our decision-making, in our evaluating of truth claims and our options. So we can't have peace on any terms because some conditions that are demanded would put us at odds with God, and then we don't have peace with God. First and foremost, if we love God in the order that we're supposed to, where we love him first, with every part of our being, every aspect, we have to consider when someone puts conditions forward for our relationship with them, are those conditions, if we accept them, going to put us at odds with God? Well, the apostles, when they're pulled before the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts, and they're asked, why are they preaching the gospel? Why are they preaching Jesus? When they were explicitly told to stop, to knock that off. Their answer is, we must obey God rather than men. Now, this presents us with uh, something that we need to qualify when we interpret this passage with the rest of Scripture. Because in Romans 13, for instance, we're told to obey the governing authorities, for no authority is instituted among men except by God. But there's the qualifier on that for Romans 13 to be uh, taken seriously by us as Christians. We first have to love God and put weight in the fact that he's commanded us. Now, how can it be that we're going to obey Romans 13 and thereby obey governing authorities who are human because we obey God if the governing authorities are telling us to disobey God? Well, uh, then we're, we're just in a big loop-de-loop and going around and around and around like a, a hamster in a wheel where we're never going to get anywhere with that kind of, uh, you know, dilemma. It's self-defeating. So first off, we have to be obeying human authority if it is legitimate human authority that God has instituted. We have to obey that human authority as Christians because we are obeying God. But if that human authority tells us to do or say something which God has explicitly told us not to, then we cannot obey that human authority. If that human authority is telling us to not do or not say something which God has explicitly commanded us to do and to say, then we cannot obey that human authority. We must obey God rather than men. 
Now, where this gets interesting in the past year, and this is not hypothetical, this is not, well, maybe if Biden you know, gets elected, maybe he'll do X, Y, Z, and oh, no, that's ridiculous, and that, w- that would never happen. And, and you know, getting into you know, um, speculation, we don't have to speculate about what has already transpired this year. It is not theoretical. It is not hypothetical. It is not speculative that the left is willing to close down churches while at the same time giving free reign to violent rioters and looters. It is not hypothetical to say that the left has a bias against Christianity and sees Christianity as a threat to its own worldview, its own agenda, its own truth claims, its own morality. The left is always throughout the modern political history of not just Western nations, but also uh, nations in other parts of the world that are not Europe and not America, which have tried to emulate Western ways of uh, thinking and organizing politically. Everywhere that leftist ideology has been has become dominant and become the governing authority, it has taken upon itself the role of checking Christianity, of trying to control Christianity or trying to suppress it or trying to persecute it or trying to eliminate it within its jurisdiction because Christianity makes fundamentally um, contradictory mutually exclusive truth claims to leftist ideology. Now, in the vice presidential debate, if you watched that between current vice president Mike Pence and current senator and uh, proposed or prospective uh, vice president Kamala Harris, you'll remember possibly that the topic of abortion came up. And Mike Pence made very clear I am a Christian, and therefore I am opposed to, unapologetically, abortion. Abortion is the taking of an innocent life. It is shedding innocent blood. It is murder. And so I, I oppose it without reservation, without apology. And Kamala Harris shot back with, I find that deeply offensive, and you know, I am also a person of faith, and I am also... Uh, you know, religious, and I, I am offended that you would dare to suggest otherwise that we're not religious. Well, here's a critical distinction. Which is the cart and which is the horse? What I mean by that is, are our political agendas, our political philosophies, upstream or downstream of our religious activity and beliefs? You know, to put this in another uh, sense, does our Christianity inform our politics or do our politics inform our Christianity? So a practical example would be God says that homosexuality is a sin. He says it in the Old Testament. He says it in the New Testament as well. He says very clearly this is sexual immorality and it is detestable to him. A progressive in our day, as opposed to 15, 20 years ago, a progressive in our day says, no, homosexuals and transgendered people and bisexuals are every bit as moral and upright and legitimate and praiseworthy, and maybe even more so if they have been oppressed and and victimized, uh, compared with heterosexuals, compared with so-called cisgender persons. So what ends up happening for the theology in progressive churches is that they shy away from saying that homosexuality or transgenderism is a sin, or they say, well, yes, it's a sin, but you know we're all sinners, right? And, and it's no different than any other sin, and so what, right? It's not our place to judge. Uh, or they say, some great amount of nothing about it. And they just choose to talk about other verses that they like better. 
because they want to appear spiritual. They want to appear religious because they know that like Niccolo Machiavelli said in The Prince, like Sololinsky said in Rules for Radicals, the appearance of virtue is very useful politically. And The Prince, according to Machiavelli, will go much farther if he at least pretends at virtue, but behind the scenes has no constraints on what he's willing to do or say in order to get or retain or expand or consolidate his power. That is the Democratic Party to a T. They will say they're religious. They will say, well, I'm a Christian too, but their actions prove otherwise. Jesus said that you are to judge with right judgment. He said, judge not lest you be judged, but he also said, judge not by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Well, where do we have an example of right judgment? Where do we look to, to find right judgment? Who do we ask? If it's something that can be given to men, who gives it? And who can we go to and request it? Well, the scriptures are very clear that right judgment is God's judgment. And that makes intuitive sense. It's logically consistent. It's not at all confusing unless you want it to be, unless you just are uncomfortable with the position and you don't like it, like somebody who doesn't want to eat their uh, leafy greens and, uh, and their <laughs> fruits and vegetables. They just want to eat sugary cereal all the time. You don't want it. It doesn't, it doesn't appeal to you. But all of your claims that it's not healthy and all of your you know, overly dramatic uh, pretending that it's going to kill you to eat a, a head of broccoli once in a while is nonsense. It's rubbish. At the end of the day, objectively speaking and demonstrably true, these things that God gives us as far as commands and prohibitions are right judgment. And so when someone disobeys those and does not conform to God's law or the natural law, if you will, then we are right to judge them and to call spades a spade. So when John the Baptist, for instance, in the New Testament, rebukes publicly Herod for taking his brother's wife, that is not John's opinion. He is not judging by appearances. It doesn't just appear that Herod is an adulterer. It is in actual fact the case. He has taken his brother's wife. And God says, don't do that. He did it. He's guilty. He needs to stop it. He needs to repent. There needs to be restitution. So also, in the case of Democrats that love to, on the one hand, say we need to maintain separation of church and state, and they opposed the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court here recently on the grounds that she would rule from the bench based on her religious convictions, based on her conservative Catholic convictions about abortion, for instance, being opposed to Roe v. Wade, believing that it was a judicial overreach, that it was legislating from the bench, that it was judicial activism. Her being an originalist and also having morals and character, they opposed that. And yet, how often have you heard Democrats like Obama, like Biden, like Pelosi, like Schumer, reference when Jesus talks about taking care of the poor and the needy. Reference when Jesus says to love one another, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So they want separation of church and state unless they can twist the scriptures like Satan does and tell you, you have to support me, you have to empower me, you have to put me in charge or else you're not a very good Christian. Well, wait a second. When I said I wouldn't be a very good Christian if I voted for somebody who's for murdering innocent babies, you said that this is not a theocracy. I'm confused now. Which is it? 
Well, the, the, the reality is that their rhetoric doesn't have to be consistent. The facts don't even have to be consistent with their claims because what is most important to them is not objective truth. What's most important to them is not the experience of previous generations, the experience of persons from Latin American countries that have tried socialism, that have tried communism, who have lived under totalitarian regimes, who oppressed their people, who drove their people to starvation, to eating dogs and cats, to breadlines, to oppressive, uh, heavy-handed Gestapo tactics. What's important to the left is not what went before. It's not what's tried and true. It's not what is right objectively. What's important most to them is the future. There's a, a great book by Yuval Levin that I recently read, The Great Debate. And The Great Debate goes back to Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine. And they both wrote and were politically active in the UK and elsewhere around the time of the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And interestingly enough, one of them opposed the French Revolution to such an extent that he wrote a book, Reflections on the Revolution in France, in which he said in no uncertain terms and at great length and very eloquently, I am against it. I am not for it. And you shouldn't be for it either. The other was all for it. Edmund Burke wrote Reflections on the Revolution of France. Thomas Paine uh, took the opposite position and castigated Burke for failing to support this triumph of liberty over tyranny, of the people over arbitrary rule by uh, monarchs, by the rich, by the wealthy, by tradition. And what it all really boiled down to for Paine was that he had a fundamentally different vision of people. He had a fundamentally different vision of reality. In Paine's view, religion, organized religion, uh, Christianity especially, was superstition. And it was irrational. And it could not be proven to his rational mind he argued because it wasn't true. And he had no obligation, no responsibility to accept it as true just because you said Jesus was born to a virgin and performed miracles and died and was buried and raised again on the third day and is the son of God. He had no obligation to believe any of that or take you seriously if you believed it if you couldn't prove it to him beyond a shadow of a doubt. So he believed in an abstract idea of God, and the, the convenient thing about that is that when you believe in an abstract God, when you believe in a, a God that is very vague and that, you, that you, you can't know through special revelation because this God didn't give us a Bible and didn't reveal himself through the prophets, when you believe in that kind of a God— he is about as good as having no God at all, right? Now, it retains the, the special quality of uh, helping men to be virtuous, and it retains the respectability of, uh, in that day, not being called an atheist, because that was a very serious charge, or at least being able to hopefully have a defense against the charge of atheism. But one of the practical implications of Thomas Paine insisting that everything had to be proved to his reason, to his rational mind, was that he rejected this whole idea of original sin, he rejected this idea that man is sinful, and that man has sinful desires which need to be constrained and need to be controlled and need to be opposed and need to be 
uh, you know, when those desires turn into unjust actions that need to be punished. He rejected that idea in favor of the idea that man is inherently good. At least according to Yuval Levin's book and and according to uh, uh, Thomas Sowell's uh, uh, conflict of visions. You have the constrained vision, you have the unconstrained vision. And Burke, by contrast, believed that the Bible was true. He believed in God. He believed uh, in the Christian God. And he believed also in tradition. And to him, tradition was a value in no small part because of his humility. And what I mean by that is that not trusting in the nature of an individual man, to be honest, to be wise, uh, to be upright, to be fair, Burke believed that it was not only better to have objective laws based on a fixed standard of right and wrong, but also where things are left up to our discretion as people, where God's word doesn't speak to them, and where we, to some extent, just have liberty to make up rules and structure things and organize them you know, as we see fit, that it was, the, you know, um, discretion as the better part of valor if we looked to the, the traditions of the past, if we looked to what had been tested and tried in previous generations to get some idea of, is this a good idea or is this a bad idea? Should we try this or should we avoid it like the plague? And Payne really threw all of that out and said, no, 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 that's ridiculous. There is no reason that one generation should be beholden, should be obligated to follow in the footsteps of the previous generations and accept all of their traditions. Now, I don't entirely disagree with Payne in that regard. Insofar as, for instance, when Jesus and his disciples are preaching the gospel throughout Judea and they are butting up against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, they, in many cases, are being rebuked, not because they have violated one of God's laws, but because they have violated a tradition, a human tradition, which was built up as a kind of buffer zone around God's laws. So what had happened in Israel is that you had God's law that he gave to Moses for the people of Israel. And then the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of these very holy people read, studied, uh, analyzed, and tried to teach the people what does this mean? Why did God command this? Right? And as they were trying to teach them what these things meant and what their implications were, they built up buffer zones, right? And and basically, at a certain point over time, people were obeying the scribes and the Pharisees, first and foremost, not so much obeying God directly. God had not said do X, Y, Z. That was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so they forgot who God was. They forgot their place in things. They, they ceased to be humble. And they became very conceited and very full of themselves. And they became blind guides. And so that's what Jesus calls them. He calls them blind guides. And he rebukes them because they invalidate the commands of God even in favor of their traditions. And a, a practical uh, example of this, a, a little snapshot, is again in the book of Acts where you have the Sanhedrin. They're the religious council. They are wise, supposedly learned, holy men who call in Jesus' disciples who are obeying what they've been commanded by God to do and they are preaching repentance and salvation in Jesus. And the Sanhedrin commands them to stop it. 
you clearly have forgotten your first love if you claim to be serving God by telling people to stop obeying God. You took a wrong turn there somewhere. And so what we have in the case of the progressive Democrats is we have people who, in some cases, are the inheritors of ideas that were born of the French Revolution. In some cases, you have you know, people who are inheritors of the ideas of Thomas Paine, who rejected biblical Christianity but still found it useful to have a vague, fuzzy God idea in his philosophy, but didn't really believe in any kind of a God that amounted to anything meaningful for our lives. Um, and in some cases, you have progressives who are the descendants of Puritans who wanted to bring about heaven on earth, and they didn't see liberty as being an individual thing. They didn't see uh, the free market necessarily as being so much of a value as community holiness. And at a certain point, when, when the left in America has mixed all of these ideas together, the ideas of Thomas Paine, the ideas of the French Revolution, the, the ideas of these Puritans, they've come up with this really toxic mixture of self-righteousness and of condescension. And we know better than you do. We are the anointed. We're going to tell you what you can and cannot do. We're going to tell you what you can and cannot say. We're going to insist on a rigid conformity to our standard of righteousness. All the while, barring you from talking about what did God say? Oh, no, 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 no. Nope. You don't get to go there, mister. You don't get to go to God and, and find refuge in him. You have to come to us. And then you, we're going to take your taxes, and then we will obey God on your behalf. Vicariously, you will be charitable to the poor through us. And we're going to manipulate language in such a way that you believe that all of these verses in the New Testament and the Old Testament talk about taking care of the poor. Anything you've done for the least of these in my name, you've done unto me. We're going to twist those passages so that you believe we have the right to confiscate your property and give it to somebody else. And that that is obedience to these ideas. That's what Jesus was talking about. Not so fast. Not so fast. Now, I haven't read it yet, but I was tagged on Facebook. I've got a huge backlog of Facebook notifications. It's about 50 at this point. But I was tagged on Facebook uh, with a link to an article by John Piper. John Piper recently wrote something with regards to voting. I haven't read it yet. I've only heard that he, he comes out and takes the position that Christians don't have to vote any particular way in order to be good, faithful Christians. That's nonsense, right? Now, John Piper is also the one who says, you know, uh, he, he ascribes to the idea of Christian hedonism, love God and do what you will. Um, so I can see maybe, you know, why he would end up coming to the conclusions that he is, albeit badly mistaken, if he's saying, well, you can vote Democrat, you can vote Republican, you can vote for Islamists, you can vote for communists. I mean, whatever, right? You know, like whatever. Like, I don't, I don't want to interfere with your individual conscience and bind your conscience, and it's not right for me to do so. And so I'm just going to say, like, do whatever, right? Like anything goes. What is truth? Like Pontius Pilate. Um, I haven't read John Piper's piece, so I, I shouldn't characterize it uh, any certain way. But I have heard that's the position he's taken. So we'll see. Um, also, I was tagged in a response that was written by Gary DeMar, where I'm sure knowing Gary DeMar's material and having read him for a number of years now, I'm sure Gary DeMar is contradicting uh, John Piper and saying, no, this is why Christians cannot vote for Joe Biden, and really also why it's irresponsible for Christians to sit out this election, given the stakes, 
given, you know, our requirement to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, to love God with all of our being. We have the ability to do good here. If we do not do it, it is a sin. I'm sure that's the position that uh, Gary DeMar will take in some form or fashion. And uh, even if it weren't, that is the truth, right? I, I won't agree with it because Gary DeMar said it. But if Gary DeMar or anybody says it, I agree with it because it's true. It's true. Whoever is saying that is my ally. And I I don't know what happened to John Piper that uh, he would say, well, it doesn't really matter how we vote. Like, you vote for whatever, right? Like, you know, Montezuma you know, makes a comeback and he's running for office and he's talking about, you know, offering 80,000 uh, prisoners uh, as human sacrifices to the the corn god, and you can vote for that. That yeah, it's, I mean it's kind of like Christianity, right? Like greater love has no man than that he lays down his life for his friends. So I mean, I, yeah, it's kind of uh, you know, yeah, um, that just doesn't work. That doesn't work. That's not okay. That's irresponsible. Um, you know, <laughs> lightly have they healed the wounds of my people, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Um, you know, John Piper, I'm sure, is a very fine man, and I'm sure he's done really great work for Jesus, and I'm not his judge. Um, I will say, even Peter had to be rebuked at a certain point by Paul because he was showing partiality to the Judaizers. He was afraid to displease them. And I think what you have in John Piper and, uh, and some of these other evangelical leaders that are flirting, they're flirting with a mistress who is destruction for uh, the Christian influence in this country and for Christian people uh, in this country. They're flirting with that uh, progressive ideology, which is contrary and contradictory to and mutually exclusive uh, with Christian worldview, Christian teaching, what Christ said, who Christ was, who Christ is, who God was, who God is, who God always will be. God is not progressed. God's word is not progressed, right? Uh, we cannot buy into this lie that we have a responsibility as good Christians to maintain our testimony and sit this one out. Bunk. That is just bunk. You know, it, it, do you not know that we will judge angels how much more so matters of this life pertaining to this life? Is there not one among you who has wisdom to judge these matters? That's what I believe the Apostle Paul would say to us. And this is not to say you have to love and agree with everything that Trump says and does, because you can't. But tell me who in the scriptures would you love and agree with everything that they said and did? Solomon? Solomon wrote uh, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Song of Songs. And... He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, right? Somehow in God's wisdom and good pleasure, Solomon writes the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And some of us really need to get reacquainted with that wisdom literature in the Old Testament and stop acting like they're somehow more righteous than God as if they get to sit in the judgment seat of Christ and look down on President Trump or the people that support him. Uh, some of us have a lot of pride. It's not your testimony you're concerned about. It's your ego. It's your your uh, self-esteem. It's not your testimony you're concerned about. It's that you're afraid that there's going to be a cost. And you don't want to pay that cost. Uh, that kind of cowardice does not please God. That kind of faithlessness does not please God. And so I would really encourage all of us who love Jesus, who say we love Jesus, who say we love our fellow man, who do love our fellow man, to consider is the way that we approach this, uh, is it very pious sounding like the Pharisees? And have we built up a, a very thick buffer zone around what God actually said, what God's word actually says, what God would actually have us do and not do. And does that buffer zone keep us not from sinning, but from obeying? 
does it keep us from righteousness? Right? All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. And what's included in that is some of our ideas, some of our opinions on how somebody should talk, how somebody should look, how somebody should engage in a debate. Oh, I really didn't enjoy the way President Trump handled that first debate. And he's just, oh, he's really brash. And that wasn't, that wasn't, you know, he calls himself a Christian. Ah, you know. Um, yeah. Okay. And you're, you're going to get hung up on that and then not vote for anybody this time around when the other person wants to destroy our ability to generate electricity or manufacture plastics or fuel our automobiles because he wants to bankrupt the oil and gas industry. He wants to abolish oil and gas. You know, we've got, we've got a guy that tweets rude ideas on the one hand. And on the other hand, we've got somebody who believes in partial birth abortion being a right, a woman's right. The most wrong thing that I can conceive of, Joe Biden and the Democrats believe is a right. And that if you oppose it, you're the villain. You're the bad guy. You're the oppressor. We cannot be foolish about this. We cannot be simple-minded about this. We need wisdom. And, and don't come to a conclusion because I said it. Again, I'm just a messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. And I could be wrong about a great many things. I'm sure I am wrong about a great many things. I, I can only entrust myself to God's grace for that. I want to be faithful. I don't want to be a, a bench warmer. And, and sit on the sidelines and watch my neighbor, my family, my friends, my coworkers be destroyed. And uh, even if that's what I end up having to do, I have to watch all of this happen and unfold before me. I don't, if that is what happens, I don't want to regret having sat on the sidelines, having said nothing, have, having been passive. Uh, and, you know, on the other hand, too, uh, there's a real possibility that if we repent of our national sins, you know, those of us who are, who are um, you know, self-indulgent and materialistic and idolatrous and faithless and immoral actively with the things that we do, if we turn away from those sins, God says, he will heal our land. He will hear from heaven and his wrath will be turned away and he will heal our land. God is merciful. He wants to be merciful. He wants his children to love and obey him. But we have to turn from our sin. We have to repent. So also, those of us who believe we are very fine people and who console our inactivity, our passivity, our fruitlessness, our unproductivity, our burying talents in a field because we are afraid. Our, we know our master is a hard man who reaps where he doesn't sow. We need to repent of that because that is not praiseworthy. That is not laudable. That is not righteous. That is not being heavenly minded. So with that, I'm going to leave it there for today. This is quite enough material to cover in one episode. If you listened all the way through, please hit subscribe and share this episode or this podcast. I would really appreciate it. If you have something to contribute or if there's a topic you'd like me to discuss, uh, hit me up. You can find me at uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm on Parlor. Uh, I, I have got social media accounts on a lot of places, uh, in a lot of places. So hit me up, uh, reach out, garrettmullet at gmail.com is my email address. And I'd love to hear from you if uh, what I said was helpful, if it was uh, infuriating, if it was encouraging, if it was whatever. Uh, but also, too, uh, you know, really 
get into God's word. God's word is truth. My opinion's not truth. Hopefully my opinion conforms to what God says, but you don't have to take it from me. You can take it directly from God. And like James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let's all do that. And, uh, and let's pray for our country. Let's pray for our nation's leaders that we can have peace, real peace, not just superficial, not just peace, peace when there is no peace, but we can have peace with God, peace with our fellow man. Uh, let us pray for that. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Appreciate your time and your attention. And uh, God bless.